welcome everyone to the very first in our global series of financial services podcasts focusing on conduct issues. My name is John Ireland, a partner in our financial services group in Sydney. And today, colleagues from around the world will provide their insights on two key issues, the rising cost of living and vulnerable customers and consumer duty. Helping me guide us through the podcast, I'm joined by Simon Lovegrove, our Global Head of Financial Services Knowledge. Thanks, John. In our podcast today, we start by looking at developments in the United Kingdom, where its regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, has recently issued its long-awaited final rules for a new consumer duty. And we also explore some of the regulator's recent announcements concerning the rising cost of living. We then move to Australia. John? That's right. For the Australian section, we ask, among other things, whether Australia will follow the UK's lead and adopt something similar to the consumer duty. Uh, we'll also be focusing on the obligations regarding the treatment of vulnerable customers by financial institutions, which is um, something, as we all know, is very topical at the moment. And then for the final part of the podcast, we will be moving on to the United States, Simon. Yes, that's right, John. And the final part, considers uh, the United States, US regulators have made speeches about junk cheese, and there have been some other initiatives involving the interpretation and application of unfair, deceptive, or abusive acts and practices statutes. Oh, that's it. That's super. Thanks very much, Simon. So without further ado, uh, let's start in the UK, where, Simon, you're joined by Matt Gregory from the London office. In this section of the podcast, I'm joined by Matthew Gregory, counsel in our London financial services team. Matt, it's great to have you with us today. And to start off with, I just wanted to pose this question to you. In the United Kingdom, one of the key conduct issues facing firms relates to rising living costs. The Financial Conduct Authority has already made a number of comments on this issue. Uh, can you say a few words about this? Yeah, of course. Thanks, Simon. Well, recently, we've seen quite a lot of soft guidance from the FCA on this topic in the form of speeches. For instance, Sheldon Mills, who's the FCA's Executive Director for Consumers and Competition, gave two notable speeches. One was supporting consumers in challenging times, and the other was keeping pace with rising living costs. But in terms of hard guidance, the starting point really would be the guidance that the FCA produced in February last year, which was FG 21-1, uh, around the fair treatment of vulnerable customers and that guidance sets out the FCA's view of what firms should do to comply with their obligations under the principles and to ensure that they treat customers in vulnerable circumstances fairly. In addition the FCA issued a dear CEO letter uh, in June this year which was entitled the rising cost of living acting now to support consumers and that looked at, uh, and explained the FCA's expectations of lenders when engaging with borrowers in financial difficulty. Not only does the dear CEO letter refer to the finalised guidance on uh, the fair treatment of vulnerable customers, uh, but also goes back to the tailored support guidance for mortgages, consumer credit and overdrafts, which were issued to address the really exceptional circumstances arising out of the COVID-19 pandemic. Importantly, the regulator reminds lenders TSGs are also relevant for borrowers in financial difficulties due to other circumstances, such as the rising cost of living. I think that's really important. 
There's an annex to that Dear CEO letter as well, which has examples of behaviour that result in poor outcomes for borrowers, along with a summary of the regulator's expectations of lenders when supporting borrowers in financial difficulty. In particular, it's worth noting the FCA identified that poor outcomes for borrowers often occur when firms don't act consistently. Uh, in particular, what if they don't act consistently to explore customers' circumstances fully to provide help and support that was appropriate and tailored to their specific individual circumstances. And that point about tailoring actually will go on to, I think, a little bit later in connection with the consumer duty, um, where they don't act consistently to identify the specific needs and circumstances of customers with vulnerable characteristics to provide help and support that took account of those. And finally, where they don't uh, act consistently to help customers in financial difficulty to access money guidance or, or free debt advice. Just as a final point, the FCA recently published on its website a new web page, which has in, uh, in one place all of its relevant papers on the cost of living. And we've blogged that actually on uh, regulation tomorrow. Thanks, Matt. And now let's move on to another key, key conduct issue. And that is, in fact, the new consumer duty that you mentioned a moment ago. Now, the FCA has recently published its final rules on the new duty, and many in the market say that it represents a fundamentally new and different approach to the regulation of firms engaged in the provision of financial services and products to retail customers. To start off with, Matt, for those not familiar with the new consumer duty, why is the SCA saying this? Yeah, thanks, Simon. Well, look, I think there are two points here. First of all, the new consumer duty, it's a, it's a package of measures and they are very wide ranging. They focus on outcomes for retail customers. And the way that the new duty has been formulated will really challenge firms to reorient their business, to act to deliver good outcomes for retail customers. Secondly, the FCA's own estimate for one-off implementation costs across the sector goes up to 2.4 billion pounds. It's unlikely that there'll be many parts of any firm in the retail sector that aren't impacted by these reforms. And, and that view is shared by the regulator, which emphasized it expects the consumer duty proposals to be embedded by firms across the business. For example, firms will need to understand which of their products and services fall within the scope of the new consumer duty. They'll also need to map out the end-to-end -end customer journey for those products and services to understand the uplift that may be required to implement the final rules. And of course, there will be fundamental organizational challenges. The FCA's rules include several requirements relating to the way in which firms approve new products and also review their existing products and services. Firms are going to need to revise customer-facing communications and contracts in many cases, as well as reviewing and potentially amending distribution agreements. All of that will take time to negotiate and effect. Of course, I mentioned consumer-customer consumer uh, communications being impacted. Firms will not only have to assess the communication itself, but also the ways in which the target customer recipients are likely to, and then do in fact, engage with it. In fact, I do think that the, the, the consumer understanding outcome is one of the most obvious ways in which we can see the difference between the existing approach of the regulator and the new approach post-consumer duty. This focus on outcomes, and in this case, consumer understanding, really is so important. The measure really is whether the customer understands the communications rather than looking at the communication itself somewhat in isolation and assessing whether or not it's clear, fair and not misleading. Thanks, Matt. Um, just a quick point to make as well, which, which you can build on, is that the consumer duty doesn't impact retail firms only. A number of wholesale firms are, are going to be caught by the new provisions as well. That's absolutely right, Simon. One of the 
key uh, points to be aware of with the new consumer duty is that it will apply to firms even where they don't have a direct contractual relationship with the end retail customer. Um, obviously, in many cases, uh, some of the distribution chains around retail products and services are heavily intermediated. Those further up the chain, as you put it, wholesale firms in some cases, manufacturers of products and services, will be impacted by the new rules. There's a really interesting, a challenging scoping question for those firms in connection with the scope of application, whether or not those firms are able to materially determine outcomes for, for retail customers. So have material influence in, in determining uh, outcomes for retail customers. So I, I do think you're right. There, there, there will be impacts for a lot of uh, wholesale firms and manufacturers. And of course, we'll come on to, to timing a little bit later. Uh, but just right now, I would say for those firms, don't, over, uh, don't overlook the importance of the new consumer duty and don't underestimate uh, the present challenges. Yes, I absolutely agree with that. Now, we can't go into all of the details of the new consumer duty today. And indeed, uh, further information can be found in our standalone podcast series. But, but just for this moment, there's just one element I just wanted to pick out, which concerns the new price and value outcome. What is this, Matt, and why is it important? Thanks, Simon. So, so the price and value outcome really is a vital plank of the, the package overall. It's one of four outcomes representing the key elements of the firm and customer relationship. The FCAC's value is something more than just price. It's important to note. It wants firms to assess their products and services in the round to ensure there's a reasonable relationship between the price paid for a product or service and the overall benefits which a, cust a customer receives from it. It's the new outcome uh, is a new concept to most of the market, and so some firms will need to consider the institutional architecture they need to meet the new requirements. It's going to be important for firms to have clear assessments of the intended customer benefits of a product or service as the bedrock of the fair value assessment. Taking this on, firms will need to take a holistic view of costs when assessing value, which is going to need to include an assessment of potential non-financial costs. So customers are unable to effectively access information about product features or about contingent fees and charges, they could amount to barriers which prevent them from pursuing their financial objectives. Thanks, Matt. And just to wrap up, um, you mentioned uh, timing a moment ago. Could you just say a few final words about that? Yeah, of course. Uh, the implementation deadline for uh, new and uh, existing products and services has actually been pushed back by three months by the FCA from its original consultation paper. So that's now July 31st, 2023, giving firms pretty much a year from the point in time that the final rules were published. The FCA provided then further time for firms to review their closed or backbook products and services, as the deadline for firms in respect of these products and services is a year later, that's uh, July 2024. However, the FCA has set out a number of essential interim milestones with which it expects firms to comply in implementing consumer duty. That includes a deadline of October 31st this year for firms to approve their implementation plan. And that itself is quite a challenging timeline to meet. That means that the firms will have needed to map thoroughly in an end-to-end -end way, in the way I described earlier, the full implementation and application of the new consumer duty, that the governing body of the firm has had the opportunity to review and challenge those plans and then to have approved them. Obviously, the time for that now is just a couple of months away. So, you know, the clock is ticking, I think, for many firms. Manufacturers also need to ensure that they complete their review process for all of their products and services by the end of April next year to allow sufficient time for distributors to complete their processes for the same products and services ahead of the implementation deadline. 
It's a really good example of the way in which firms across the distribution chain are going to need to work together in some ways much more closely than they might have done uh, to date, particularly in sectors such as lending, residential mortgages and so on. Firms will therefore need to get to quickly, quickly get to grips with the final rules of the new consumer duties to ensure that their implementation projects can be delivered in time. Firms will therefore need to quickly get to grips with the final rules for the consumer duty to ensure that their implementation projects can be delivered on time. To help firms in that regard, we have put together a toolkit of key documents and workshops which firms uh, can purchase from us and they help with the implementation planning process. That includes a project implementation plan itself, also a project initiation document, as well as a series of other checklists and documents to support the board or other governing body of the firm in conducting the uh, measurement and assessment of those plans and then the final approval in time for the October deadline. Anybody uh, looking to obtain more information on that can of course contact uh, us directly and there's further information available on our website as well. Thanks Matt, that concludes the UK section of this podcast. Well, I'm delighted to be joined uh, in this next segment by um, Claudine Salome, who's a partner in the Sydney office at NRF, and um, is going to be talking with me today uh, about vulnerable customers. Welcome, Claudine. Hi, John. Thank you. Great to have you with us. Um, Claudine, um, the first question that I was interested in posing is um, in Australia, are there any statutory obligations regarding the treatment of vulnerable customers by financial institutions? Very good question, John. Um, I guess the short answer is no, but I'll, I'll expand on um, what sort of protections there are, despite the fact that there are no statutory obligations specifically related to vulnerable customers. Um, so in Australia, as you would appreciate, John, we have the general obligation to act efficiently, honestly, and fairly. And that's enshrined in two pieces of legislation, the Corporations Act and the National Consumer Credit Protection Act. But beyond that, there are no statutory obligations regarding the treatment of vulnerable customers, or in other words, vulnerability per se is not specifically regulated in Australia. However, there are plenty of industry codes and guidance that require institutions to treat vulnerable customers fairly, sympathetically and sensitively. And certain industry bodies have also released useful guidance and facts sheets. So for example, the Australian Banking Association has released its own guidance that covers several categories of vulnerability, including elder abuse, financial difficulty, family and domestic violence, and also financial abuse. And similarly, the Australian Financial Complaints Authority also has response guides and documents setting out its approach to issues including financial difficulty, financial elder abuse, and joint accounts and family violence. In Australia, we also have the Banking Code of Practice, and this code comprises a set of enforceable standards that customers, small businesses and their guarantors can expect from Australian banks who are signatories to the code. And Chapter 14 of the code provides a commitment by these banks to take extra care with customers who are experiencing vulnerability. Um, and finally, Australia's conduct regulator ASIC 
while it has not yet released any guidance regarding the treatment of vulnerable customers, it has made various public statements about its expectations for protecting vulnerable customers, particularly at the height of the pandemic over the last couple of years. Also, financial hardship itself is a huge focus for ASIC and will remain a focus over the next little while, given market factors around inflation and the rising of interest rates. ASIC has also put a spotlight on debt management firms and the risks they present to consumers, resulting in those firms being required to hold a credit license for certain activities. And just last month, ASIC has taken a temporary no action position to enable the large banks in Australia to withhold the reporting of certain sensitive information such as financial hardship information on consumer credit reports, where reporting that information could lead to consumer harm, specifically in the circumstances where a consumer may be the victim of family violence. Oh, well, thanks very much. Yes, clearly there's um, quite a number of sources of potential obligation there currently and um, across a number of different um, uh, heads. So um, that, that that's interesting. In, in terms of the forward-looking position, as we know, as of the uh, 27th of July this year, the UK now has a new consumer duty. Um, and that, that consumer duty represents one of the largest pieces of regulatory reform in the UK retail financial services sector for more than a decade and introduces a higher level of consumer protection across the sector. Um, Claudine, do you think Australia will follow suit? John, well, in Australia, we do have um, a number of overlapping and complementary obligations that I think taken together arguably do achieve what the consumer duty aims to achieve. Um, and in addition to the general duty of financial services and credit licensees obligation to act efficiently, honestly and fairly, which I mentioned earlier, there are also other obligations that protect consumer protections, which makes me wonder whether the consumer duty is actually necessary in the Australian market. Yeah, that's that's interesting, isn't it? It it, um, it, it can often be the case that we look uh, and we look and consider about um, you know potential duplication. Could you could you give us perhaps some further detail on what you describe as the overlapping? and complementary or, or other obligations in Australia? Yeah, sure, John. Um, the other obligations I'm referring to really relate to four relatively new obligations in Australia. They include the mortgage broker's interests, best interests duty, the financial advisor's best interests duty, the design and distribution obligations, or DDO as we call them, and the product intervention powers. Now, with the best interests duty, these require mortgage brokers and financial advisors to act in the best interests of consumers and also to prioritise a consumer's interests where a conflict of interest or a potential conflict of interest may arise. DDO places greater responsibility on the issuers and distributors of financial products to appropriately design and also distribute or sell their products to the right consumer. Last month, ASIC um, announced that it had placed interim stop orders on three firms for failure to comply with their DDO obligations. So, And this was the first enforcement action taken by ASIC in relation to DDO. So I do feel like 
given these obligations are relatively new, there's a lot more for us to see in this space that will hopefully protect consumers. And lastly, the product intervention powers provide ASIC with the power to also take temporary action to intervene where it is satisfied that a financial product has or may result in significant consumer detriment. And again, ASIC has also um, used these powers in the past where it suspects a product might be harmful to consumers. Thanks very much. Yeah, I mean, it does seem an important point there that um, the... Um, the new toolkits that are being afforded to the regulator are really just now coming through in the sense of um, seeing some of these regulatory actions for the for the first time. And, and it'd be fascinating to see how it plays out, obviously, with current um, current events in the current environment. I mean, in, in that sense, then, um, obviously, globally, the, the cost of living crisis, uh, as we all know, high inflation and rising interest rates are making headlines. Do you think the the existing legislative framework in Australia is sufficient to, to ensure that customers who do experience vulnerability because of those market forces will be treated fairly by their financial institutions? Yeah, John. Um, I mean, vulnerability itself has been a significant focus for ASIC and the Australian banks over the past few years. And as you say, given what's happening around us, I expect that that focus will not only continue, but will be heightened um, and intensified. And ASIC has quite clearly and publicly made it, its expectations clear when it comes to the treatment of vulnerable customers, not just to Australian banks, but also to Australian insurance companies and superannuation funds. Um, and the banking code of practice that I mentioned earlier um, does include express commitments by Australian banks to take extra care with vulnerable customers. Plus also given the context within which we are operating economically, all banks also have a financial hardship policy that is easily accessible. And there are particular categories of vulnerability such as elder abuse and family and domestic violence, including financial abuse, that are receiving intense attention by financial institutions because they see that they have a significant role to play in assisting consumers at risk of harm. Um, ASIC's no action stance, for example, that I mentioned earlier in relation to the reporting of financial hardship information also demonstrates an understanding by the regulator of the seriousness of some of these issues and a willingness to adopt a flexible approach to protect the most vulnerable of customers. So I do think we have enough support in our regulatory and legislative framework to support vulnerable customers. Um, and I guess we'll just see what happens in the next little while, John, and how much of an interventionist approach the regulator might take if there are instances of customers being taken advantage of. Well, that's great. That, thank you, Claudine. That's a that's a tremendous rundown uh, across uh, a, a complex area, but one which um, we should certainly, as you say, be accept expecting to see more in the next little while. So thank you again. It's been great having you join us. Thanks very much, John. My pleasure. In the final part of this podcast, I'm very pleased to be joined by Tim Byrne, a partner in our financial services regulatory team in New York, who will share his thoughts from a banking consumer finance perspective 
as opposed to investment products. Tim, it's great to have you with us. And to start with, can you say a few words about the statutes and regulations that the US has in place to protect vulnerable consumers of credit and payments products? Yes, certainly, Simon. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I'll start with a legal overview. And just remember, what's important is that you know, enforcement of these laws is a high priority in the current administration. You know, understanding and compliance, therefore, uh, needs to be a high priority for financial services providers. So there are several laws in the United States you know, enacted at different times and often to address uh, different issues. Right? The United States now has an expansive framework of federal and state consumer protection laws. I'll focus mostly on the federal rules that generally apply nationally. The one category of consumer protection rule is the disclosure rules that apply to loan products and deposit accounts. The idea behind these laws is to require uniform disclosure of important account terms and conditions so that consumers have an informed basis for comparison shopping. These statutes include the Truth in Lending Act for loans, the Truth in Savings Act for deposits. Other laws also have disclosure requirements. So these include the Electronic Fund Transfer Act, which is implemented by Regulation E uh, and governs transfers of funds initiated by you know, an electronic terminal, telephone, computer, um, and it instructs a debit or credit to a consumer's account. Uh, Reg E also implements statutory provisions of the Dodd-Frank Act from 2010, governing remittance transfers, which is sending money outside the country and is a service that many immigrants utilize to send money home to their families. Often these are financially unsophisticated or otherwise vulnerable consumers. We also have Regulation CC, which implements the Expedited Funds Availability Act and governs the availability of funds deposited to bank accounts. Other statutes include the Credit Card Accountability, Responsibility and Disclosure Act of 2009, um, known more easily as the CARD Act, uh, that amended the Truth in Lending Act, um, and that placed various limits and notice requirements around you know, changing interest rates and charging fees um, as well as establishing minimum age requirement uh, of 21 to even have a credit card, um, subject to some exceptions. Um, you know, in addition to disclosure requirements, um, the statutes and regulations um, provide substantive protections. So Reg E is the law that limits consumer liability for unauthorized transfers uh, to $50 under certain circumstances um, or $500 under other circumstances. Um, based on amendments um, adopted in 2009, Reg E requires that consumers affirmatively opt in to overdraft services where fees are charged for overdrafts resulting from a debit card um, or ATM uh, transaction. So in the area of lending, Regulation Z implements the Truth in Lending Act. It imposes certain limits on high cost loans by imposing an ability to repay assessment. Uh, Regulation Z also affords consumers with a brief three-day uh, right of rescission under certain circumstances, uh, generally involving uh, certain mortgage refinancings and home equity loans. Uh, there are other statutes 
that historically have not come into play on a day-to-day -day basis, um, but have so more recently. Uh, for example, there are rules that govern the disclosure of insured status of bank deposits um, and laws around misrepresenting the insured status of non-deposit financial products. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, perhaps the most far-reaching consumer protection laws of general applicability in the U.S. are federal UDAP statutes. That's U-D-A-P. So UDAP stands for Unfair or Deceptive Acts or Practices. UDAP statutes exist at the federal and state level, uh, and UDAP has been a standard in the Federal Trade Commission Act for decades. Then, as part of the Dodd-Frank Act in 2010, a separate UDAP statute was enacted that included a second A for abusive practices, such that UDAP provisions under Dodd-Frank cover unfair, deceptive, or abusive acts or practices. Exactly how the terms get defined and applied is a matter of evolving law. But in general, an unfair practice is one that harms a consumer where the consumer is powerless to avoid the harm. A deceptive practice generally involves a material misrepresentation or omission. Uh, that can include a bait and switch or leaving out material terms or product offering. And then there are several components to the standard for an abusive um, act of practice, the newest one. Uh, in general, though, an abusive act of practice is one that materially interferes with the ability of a consumer to understand a term or condition of a product or service, or that takes advantage of a lack of understanding of material risks or costs, or where the consumer has an inability to protect his or her interests, or the consumer reasonably relies on the service provider to act in the interest of the consumer. So UDAP can be applied to many scenarios. Uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau um, has issued examination guidance that has several examples. And things like you know, violations of rules regarding protecting uh, the privacy of customer information or discrimination in lending activity can also form the basis for a UDAP violation. Now, another category of statutes is are the anti-discrimination laws. So several statutes prohibit discrimination on the basis of race, religion, gender, and other factors. Some of these laws apply to specific sectors um, of commercial activity and some to financial services providers more generally. Uh, for example, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act uh, implemented by the CFPB's Regulation B generally prohibits discrimination in the granting of credit. The Fair Housing Act prohibits discrimination in loans that are secured by residential real estate. The Community Reinvestment Act takes another approach. Uh, this statute was, uh, like many of the others, uh, enacted in the 1970s, along with other civil rights laws from the 60s and 70s. Uh, it is generally an anti-redlining statute and was designed to expand access to credit and other banking services to low and moderate income communities. So redlining was generally the practice of excluding minority areas from access to banking services, uh, literally implemented by drawing red lines on maps to delineate the excluded area. Um, so the CRA is implemented by regulations adopted by the US federal banking agencies. And the primary enforcement mechanism of the CRA is that performance under the CRA 
is a factor that impacts the supervisory status of banks in terms of their ability to engage in uh, merger and acquisition transactions and certain other matters requiring regulatory approval. So in the spring of this year, the agencies, the US federal banking agencies issued a proposed major overhaul of these regulations. Uh, the proposed uh, amendments are designed to further the goal of financial inclusion by expanding access to banking services in low and moderate income areas. The revised regulations would also take into account the changing business landscape um, by, by looking at mobile banking and the expanded ability of banks to make investments and lend outside of the geographic location where they have their physical branch locations. There are a host of other federal laws. There's the Fair Credit Reporting Act, the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, the Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act, telemarketing sales rules, and others. They are, what they govern is uh, indi indicated by their names, but there's a lot of detail in the implementation. So the web of federal statutes and regulations makes compliance an ongoing challenge. And while I've focused on federal laws, state laws are important also. Sometimes they are preempted, but not always uh, and by federal law. And the laws of some states, such as California in the area of consumer privacy or security breach procedures, end up establishing a sort of de facto national standard. Uh, state laws are also important to certain cryptocurrency activities. Uh, for example, state money transmitter laws uh, apply to such activities. However, when it comes to crypto, the real focus is at the federal level and how the federal securities or commodities laws should apply. Um, and crypto really is uh, a topic uh, for another day. We do a separate uh, podcast uh, just on crypto. Thanks, Tim. That's a very interesting overview. Um, so what products and services have drawn the attention of the U.S. regulatory authorities? Yeah, so let me start with a, a quick overview of the regulatory structure in the United States. Uh, most of the statutes I've been talking about are implemented by regulations adopted by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or CFPB. Um, that's an agency that was established uh, under the Dodd-Frank Act, um, which was enacted in 2010 uh, in the aftermath of the 2007-08 uh, financial crisis. The laws and regulations administered by CFPB have for the most part been around much longer. And before CFPB was created, the Federal Reserve Board was responsible for drafting many of the consumer protection regulations. So although the CFPB generally write, writes the rules, uh, the CFPB and other agencies are responsible for enforcing the rules with respect to different segments of the financial services industry. With respect to banks alone, the CFPB with respect to larger banks, and then the Federal Reserve, Office of the Controller of the Currency, and Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation are the responsible agencies, depending on uh, the charter type of the bank. The Department of Justice also has enforcement authority. We often see law enforcement and regulatory agencies taking coordinated action in the areas of uh, money laundering and sanctions violations. This happens also in some consumer protection and anti-discrimination actions. So, um, you know, in terms of context, you have those agencies, you have so much technological innovation happening together with a global health pandemic and various economic strains in the economy 
You have protection of vulnerable consumers is a particular focus of US regulators. So in terms of products, I'll focus on you know, banking and payments, leaving aside insurance, securities, commodities, crypto, uh, and other investments. But some of the uh, products and services that are um, the subject of regulatory focus are lending, um, in particular discriminatory pricing uh, of loans based on race, fees of all types, especially late fees on credit cards, and overdraft fees or not sufficient funds fees on deposit accounts, liability for fraudulent payments, um, so deposit accounts and payment services is um, a significant uh, area of focus. Uh, buy now, pay later products are gaining attention, both the credit aspects and the consumer um, privacy um, aspects of the product. Um, crypto, like I say, uh, for another day, but it is a focus. And then shifting gears, I would mention bank mergers because bank mergers themselves have been delayed and subjected to greater scrutiny. So there are several relatively large merger transactions pending in the US right now. Uh, in several cases, the regulators have held public meetings on the application in order to allow for greater community input on the various statutory factors that the regulators consider. And that includes um, performance under the Community Reinvestment Act, competition, and the convenience and needs of the communities to be served by the merged institution. Thanks, Tim. Interesting comments about buy now, pay later in the UK. This has been subject to, to a lot of scrutiny. Um, as my next question, um, can you tell us a little bit more about what actions the US regulators have taken? Yes, the, the US regulators have taken action using all of the various tools in the regulatory toolkit. So in terms of formal enforcement actions, the Department of Justice took action against the lender under the Equal Credit Opportunity Act based on discriminatory loan pricing. Uh, the CFPB uh, earlier this month filed a petition in federal court to enforce a civil investigative demand, a request for information, that was issued in 2020 to a financial technology company relating to its treatment of unauthorized payments um, and timely access to funds you know, in potential violation of UDAP statutes and Regulation E. The Federal Trade Commission has initiated enforcement actions related to fraudulent payments. The CFPB has issued um, FAQs and related blog posts on various issues uh, including with respect to unauthorized transfers under Regulation E, uh, stating, by the way, that when an unauthorized, um, that an unauthorized electronics funds transfer to which consumer protection provisions apply includes one initiated by a person who obtained an access device through fraud. Um, so the CFPB has also initiated enforcement actions against at least one large remittance transfer provider for alleged violations of the remittance transfer provisions of Regulation E. Uh, as is not uncommon, uh, New York State is also taking action against the same provider. Uh, and in fact, the head of the CFPB has actively encouraged state authorities to pursue actions either alone or in coordination with the CFPB. So about a year ago, 
the Justice Department, the CFPB, and the Office of the Controller of the Currency, the regulator of national banks, announced a joint anti-redlining initiative. Uh, it was accompanied by actions against a particular bank that included a $5 million civil penalty. Uh, earlier this month, the FDIC issued cease and desist demand letters to five uh, crypto-related market participants. That's, crypto isn't a focus uh, of my remarks today, but the FDIC alleged that these market participants were misrepresenting the extent to which FDIC insurance was available to customers. Violations can be costly. Uh, although this was somewhat of an outlier you know, in the area of consumer compliance, you know, about a year ago, the OCC levied a fine in the hundreds of millions of dollars on a large US bank for material deficiencies in its loss mitigation and loan modification practices related to mortgage lending. Uh, not all enforcement actions involve huge monetary penalties, but they can. In terms of regulations and examination focus, um, in January this year, the CFPB requested comment on what it termed um, junk fees uh, in order to you know, inform its potential rulemaking and enforcement priorities uh, to address such fees. And as I discussed earlier, the Community Reinvestment Act is in the process of being amended. Thanks, Tim. Uh, just as my final question, um, which has an element of horizon scanning to it, um, what are the areas to watch for in the future? Well, fees will continue to be an area of regulatory focus, sort of kitchen table type issues. Um, at the federal level, as I mentioned, the CFPB is focused on a range of fee types. So expect continuing focus on overdraft and uh, not sufficient fund uh, fees. Um, also expect continuing focus on credit card late fees. You know, the comment period just closed um, on a CFPB advance notice of, of proposed rulemaking on credit card fees and late payments. So the ANPR is sort of a predecessor to a formal proposed regulation. Um, also expect consumer protection in the context of payment fraud to be a continuing issue. Um, as making payments becomes easier, fleecing consumers becomes easier. Uh, it attracts fraudsters. So a number of senators recently wrote to the CFPB urging it to take more forceful actions to protect victims of fraudulent uh, payment schemes. Uh, in the area of climate risk management, it's another area to watch because there is a connection between climate risk uh, and diversity, equity, and inclusion goals, since climate risks often disproportionately impact already vulnerable communities. I think we can expect to see banks and other financial institutions having to take these various objectives into account in a more integrated manner uh, going forward. Another interesting development is artificial intelligence. AI will be an area of focus for regulators, especially to the extent that the use of algorithms um, is susceptible to you know, bias and inaccuracy. The term digital redlining has been used. Uh, the CFPB in particular has stated that discrimination can violate UDAP rules, um, even if specific fair lending laws uh, are inapplicable. So overall, as the products and services offered by the industry continue to uh, evolve, 
expect regulators to evolve also in their efforts to protect consumers. This will mean new areas of examination focus, novel enforcement actions to address perceived harmful conduct, and new regulations. So in other words, even in the absence of action by Congress uh, to change the applicable statutory framework uh, that governs the marketplace as the marketplace evolves, the regulators will remain active. Thanks, Tim. Thanks very much for sharing your thoughts today. Um, that concludes today's podcast, and many thanks for joining us. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>